Oh, it is always a delight to come down here, especially to preach, but just to come down here and be with you guys. Um, I love the fact that we are a family of churches. It's, it's great to be building together. Um, so it was, it was an easy thing as we started talking to Mark this summer about doing this seminar together to say, and, and we'll, we'll cover Sundays uh, to lighten the load on the weekend for, for him. One of the, one of the joys um, of this seminar was the focus on understanding how to study our Bibles. And, and Mark, as he was talking, explaining how we can approach God's Word, he was talking about the different kinds of writing that are in, in the Bible. There's things like storytelling, like poetry, and, and I got to thinking that those intersect in the life of King David. We've got these stories about how God broke into his life and shaped his life. And then we have his response as he wrote poems and, and songs that, that reflect on our great God. Um, this morning in, in Psalm 27, we're in a psalm uh, that, that David wrote expressing the security and safety he found in our God, our, our shelter. Here, here's some of the things that you're going to see. If you read the whole psalm, we're, we're going to be in, in later verses in that psalm, but uh, you see him praise God as his light, his salvation, his stronghold. He runs to God when he's assailed by adversaries, when he's in the middle of a storm. And his reliance on God is so deep that he longs for nothing more to be in his presence and to gaze on his beauty. We sang about his beauty this morning. This week was one of those weeks where you kind of feel the footing slip underneath you. Um, a dear friend of ours down in Phoenix died Friday. It's a long story. 35 years ago, she blew a heart valve giving birth to her, her second child. In the, tre- in the course of treatment, they caused damage to her liver. And so she's been in this state of needing surgery and yet not being healthy enough for it until finally a week ago. They're, she's finally healthy enough to, to undergo the surgery, but now the surgery is an aortic aneurysm, two, uh, two heart valves that need to be replaced, and while they were in there, they also discovered that she needed a coronary bypass. She was on the table for 12 hours, and it's been a roller coaster since then. Good days and, and, and days where she slipped. And then... Almost unrelated, Friday morning, uh, she had a massive stroke. And so she left a big hole in her family. She left a big hole in her church. But she is gazing on the beauty of the Lord now. So um, it's in this setting, in this psalm, that we see that prayer gives us access to God who can make sense of a storm like that.
This psalm reminds me of a time when God broke into the life of my family in a way that defined our understanding of God and our confidence in how we approach him in prayer. This is 1986, while I was in the Air Force. We moved from Montana to Mississippi. Now, for the story to have impact, you need to understand that my wife, Deb, and I are planners. So, we had a date that I needed to show up. We had a specific number of days that they gave us for travel before we had to start drawing on vacation. And so we made the plan. So we were going to box all our stuff up, put it in somebody's garage so that we could turn in the keys on the house, drive, make the eight-hour drive to Spokane to say goodbye to family, come back, load it all in a truck, and take four days to get down to Mississippi. Then the day before we intended to leave Spokane, the kids came down with the chicken pox. They were one and a half and three, and they were miserable. So we, we stayed in Spokane an extra three days, but not without feeling the impact of what this meant to the plan. So uh, back in Great Falls, we attempted to salvage the plan by loading everything up in the truck and heading out on our first leg of travel 220 miles to Billings, Montana, where we would connect with the freeway. 160 miles into the trip, the rental truck broke down. So we limped into Billings, driving without a clutch, and heard the second impact on our plan. It's going to take them two days to repair it. Two days stuck in a motel room with kids who are still infectious. Two days of mounting frustration, because our plan is disintegrating. Well, we got the truck, truck repaired, and the next couple of days were uneventful. So about halfway through the trip, we're heading south out of Kansas City, Missouri, on a two-lane highway. And a couple hours down the road, Deb calls me and says, I need to, need to pull over, got to take care of one of the kids. So I slow way down, I ease the truck onto the dirt shoulder, a surface so soggy that it immediately sucked the truck into the ditch. We ended up buried up to the bumper in the back, resting on the gas tanks, and the truck's leaning over like it's about to topple onto the, they, onto the farmer's fence. And I'm, I'm thinking, oh, it's going to take them hours to get down here with a truck that'll pull us out. And I was even afraid that they might have to unload our stuff in that muddy field. So I walked a quarter mile down the road to a farmer's house to make the call. He sent me back to the truck. He said, I'll, I'll be out a little bit to pull you out. And true to his word, came out with his tractor and a logging chain, and he pulled that 24-foot box truck out of the mud. But as I was unhooking the chain, he said words that changed my perspective. He said, Y'all are lucky you weren't here five days ago. We had six inches of ice on everything. I did the math. Three days in Spokane, two in Billings. Five days of frustration revealed as God's protection. Even now, when I remember that, that moment, the hair on my arm stands up. Our God is good. 
He is wise and he's in control. And that changes our confidence when we go to him in prayer. We're dense. It took circumstances like that for us to see what God plainly tells us in the scriptures. Things that we see in the life of David. David's knowledge of God, his understanding of his purpose and his promises, shaped and emboldened his prayers. Let's read Psalm 27, verses 7 through 12. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. But the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. Let's ask God to speak. Father, your word is true. Your word speaks to us today. And your word should change everything. Lord, use this psalm to to touch each of our hearts. May it not merely be another nugget of information, but may it penetrate. May it expose places where we question you and we question your ability to answer prayer. Lord, thank you, thank you that Jesus is the one who made that change possible. Amen. I call these verses prayer in the midst of the storm because I see four things that we can see in David's bold and effectual prayer here. Four things. Pray to the Lord who answers. Pray as one who seeks his face. Pray as one who is never rejected. And pray so as to live for Christ. The Lord answers. Why would God listen to me? I don't deserve his attention. I don't have these great accomplishments. Nothing in me curries his favor. Instead of unbridled zeal for him, I make something else the main thing too often. Instead of continual obedience, all I have to offer are the messes I've made in my rebellion and stupidity. I say that I believe one thing, and yet my life often preaches a different reality. So why would he listen? That's the very reason that David appeals to God's grace as he prays, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. There's nothing in David that would cause God to listen and respond. The miracle for him and for us is that 
we can come to God independent of any virtue on our own. Instead, we can rest completely on His character. Our, rest, our, our hope of an answer rests entirely on the character and plan of God. So He is His own reason to answer. Listen to that, not just as a general truth, but because of the specific reasons he answers. First of all, his love. God is our father. When he redeems us, he makes us his children. That's our confidence, and it, and it should be our comfort too. But you know what? We got human parents, and so sometimes... Their failures cause us to reevaluate God our Father in that light. But instead, let's let His words teach us of why we can rely on Him. Psalm 86.15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You think you can approach someone like that? Even when you blew it? Yes, he doesn't refuse to answer us because of our failure. He loves us in spite of our sin. He's never too busy, never too tired or distracted. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. That verse encourages me for two things, two reasons. One is you see his consistency. We can have confidence in him. And secondly, it says that every gift he gives us, everything that comes to us from him, is a good and perfect gift. Even those things that are difficult. So on the drive to Mississippi, we did not see God's hand at work until after those five frustrating days. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Our God is with us, and he delights in us. See that, the affection he has towards us? He invites us to come, to bring our cares and concerns to him. But nothing shows that love more than the salvation we have in Christ. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 shows us this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the payment for our sins. Is there any gift greater than that? Consider the cost. The king of heaven in the poverty of earth. The pure one stained with our sin. The unity of the Trinity ripped apart. And what do we bring? Nothing. 
This is all about him. His love is his own reason for responding when we pray. Secondly, his grace. This is the foundation of our relationship. Without his transforming grace, we would not even want to come to him. He loved us when we hated him. Romans 3, 23 and 24 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Had he not reached out in grace, providing a way to bridge the enormous gap between sinful man and a holy God, we couldn't even turn to him. It's his grace that gives us our identity as his children, his, as fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. And it continues to work, not just saving us, not just making us his children, but continuing to perfect us. Colossians 1, and 22 says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If we can trust God to save us, to transform us, to make us like that someday, then why wouldn't we approach him boldly in prayer? Third, his faithfulness. We've already read verses that remind us that he is steadfast and unchanging. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't struggle with competing motivations. He won't quit what he's begun. And he won't abandon those he loves. Even knowing that we struggle not to drift away. That we find ourselves doing the things we don't want to do and unable to do the very things we want to do. we can come to our God certain that he will hear and respond. Romans 8, 38, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul Tripp sums it up this way. He will never tell you that you've asked too much or that you've come to him too often. You'll never have to work to figure him out. You'll never have to wonder if his response to you will change. He is absolutely faithful to every promise he has made and every provision he has offered. Your hope in prayer is rooted in his faithfulness, not ours not yours. And fourth, his kingdom. Think back to what, how Jesus taught us to pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And when we pray like that, God delights to answer our prayers because he loves working out, advancing his kingdom in response 
And he unfolds his kingdom through the growth of his church and the lives of his children. So everything you take to him is part of that. Paul Tripp describes this work as he is king and he delights in his children recognizing his lordship and submitting to his rule. Every good thing he does for his children is done to rescue them from, listen to this, to rescue them from their self-focused kingdom and welcome them into the expansiveness of his kingdom of glory and grace. Our God will remain attentive and active until his kingdom is fully established forever. As you look at the reasons to be confident in God's answers, you still find yourself struggling? Charles Spurgeon said this, My own soul's conviction is that prayer is the grandest power in all in the entire universe. It has more omnipotent force than any other force known to man. It should be the first thing we do. <laughs> Approach God boldly. He will answer. Eight months after we moved to Biloxi, we were loading up a truck again to move to Nebraska. A number of people at church had heard this story, and they, they thought we were crazy. All that stuff happened, and you're going to go do it again? We could not wait to see what God was going to do. We were actually disappointed because it was uneventful. <laughs> Secondly, pray as one who seeks his face. Verse 8 says, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. To seek is to search with intent. It's to investigate and pursue. It's not a passing glance. This is not casual. When God asks us to seek his face, he's calling us to focus on his presence. Wait a minute. Aren't we always in his presence? Yes and no. I mean, he is everywhere and he has promised to be with us forever until the end of the age. And yet, we don't always experience his, his presence, do we? It's, we often allow it to be hidden behind a myriad of self-focused desires. I have to ask myself, what longings other than the Lord shape my life? Let's seek him as Paul instructed the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So what's that look like? I like what John Piper said. There's always something through which or around which we must go to meet him, God, consciously. This going through or around is what seeking is. He is often hidden, veiled. We must go through mediators and around obstacles. The heavens are telling the glory of God. So we can seek him through that. 
He reveals himself in, the, in his word so we can seek him through that. He shows himself to us in the evidences of grace in other people so we can seek him through that. The seeking is the conscious effort to get through the natural means to God himself, to constantly set our minds toward God in all our experiences, to direct our minds and hearts toward him through the means of his revelation. We all face obstacles to coming into God's presence. Some obstacles simply distract us. Pull the good things of life, pulling us away from the very best. Filling every moment of our day with busyness will steal time away from encountering the presence of God. If we allow our morning schedule to be too busy, we'll likely find ourselves immersed in the, in the work of the day, spiritually unprepared, malnourished, walking in our own strength. Simply because we haven't taken time to spend with God in His presence. The conscious effort here might be the night before. Okay, I'm going to get to sleep earlier so that I can actually get up and have some time with God before my day starts. Cry out to God. Read His truth. Ask Him to guide your efforts to help you see opportunities for His glory. When we don't make conscious efforts like that, we're going to miss times in God's presence. Other obstacles actually dull our spiritual sensitivity. Examine the things that are part of your life. When you do them, do you find yourself desiring Him more or less? That's a good indicator of their value in your life. Nowhere is this more obvious than the things we do for entertainment. And I say that because entertainment by nature tends to shift our mind into neutral. So we need to be careful about what, how we're investing that time. Take the exercise one step further. The things that you're doing that are not a distraction from God, ask yourself, are you intentionally looking to see God in them? To recognize God's work? Practice seeing God in his creation and in his grace expressed around you through the people that he brings across your paths. And then there's one more significant obstacle to entering into God's presence. Pride. See, not only does it keep us from seeking God because we think we got it, it actually sets his hand against us. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility is essential for entering God's presence. Paul Tripp captures this struggle that we all have in valuing our significance over God's presence. It would be easy to say that I'm okay. I'm not a thief. I'm not a murderer. I haven't stolen the spouse of another but this reality I cannot escape. My heart is not pure because it does not always belong to you. I have hated in my heart. I have stolen with my thoughts. I have lusted in secret. I've done all these things because my heart doesn't always belong to you. 
in the stormy moments of our life cry out to have more of Him. Let those very circumstances cause you to hunger for more of Christ. The travel trials my family encountered caused us to treasure our Father more. And it, it, it taught us that we can go to Him anticipating that He's going to act for our good. Third, pray as one never forsaken. Verses 9 and 10 say this, Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my mother and my father have forsaken me. But the Lord will take me in. These words express one of our greatest fears, rejection. But it also gives us the answer. The longer the season of trial, the easier it is to give in to this fear. My wife, Deb, was diagnosed with chronic leukemia six years ago. And it's dramatically changed our lives. It's introduced us to others who are chronically ill, many of whom find themselves isolated and alone. It can be tempting to see that as a form of rejection from God. Instead, we have had to regularly choose to see this as something God is using in our lives, in both of our lives. The sad fact is that many men walk away from chronically ill wives. They just don't... They don't see it as something God is doing in their life, not just the life of their wife. He is not against us. This is actually an expression of his care for us. He has taken Deb and I through this together because he wants to do something good in our lives that we would miss in any other circumstance. So as I look at David's words there, I I like to think of it as the rejection of rejection. We, We all encounter it. You may have seen it in the eyes of somebody in response to something you did where they turn from you, they, they hide their face to avoid looking at you in that moment. Or maybe, maybe they push you away in anger because of your actions. While always faith, painful, rejection is worse when it comes from somebody you're close to. David describes that in Psalm 55 when he says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it's you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. Here in Psalm 27, David shares the ultimate expression of human rejection, abandoned by the very people who gave you life, mom and dad. Sadly, the results of sin means that all of us experience some form of rejection. But that's not the end of the story. Verse 10 ends with the words, 
the Lord will take me in. That verb is not a passive. It's not like you knocked, he opened the door, you walked in. No, this is he actively searches us out and gathers us to himself. If we are his children, we will never hear the words, go away, depart from me. Why is that? Because Jesus already experienced that for us. On the cross, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turned his back on his only son so that God would never have to turn his back on the ones that Christ was redeeming. Once for all time, the Trinity was torn apart so that we may always find acceptance in our God. But if you say, man, I still feel God's rejection today. May I suggest that it could result from one of two things. First, maybe you haven't thrown yourself on God's mercy. You haven't yielded yourself to his salvation. You may know about it, but you haven't said, I'll stake my life on that. If you haven't put your faith in him alone and find yourself still trying to be good enough to approach him, you're going to feel rejection. Not because God won't accept you, but because you have not yet thrown yourself on his mercy. Let me emphasize yet. If that's the case today, don't leave here without talking to Mark or, or a care group leader or Come talk to me. This is way too important to let it go. Secondly, even if you were redeemed, if God has made you your child, you may be hearing the accusations of our enemy louder than you hear the mercy and grace that God freely gives us. If you find yourself there today, get to know your God better His words are true and full of grace. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Later in the chapter, starting in verse 31, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, indeed interceding for us all. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. David dispels our fear of rejection. But he also points out the delusion of independence. He calls God his help and his salvation. Like David, we are dependent on him. In the time of the storm, we need someone to rescue us. 
We're grateful, and yet it also rubs us the wrong way. We want independence, just like Adam and Eve did. That's why they gave in to the temptation when Satan said, you don't need God. We face that same trap every day. When my niece was a toddler, her favorite saying was, self do it. That's true for every one of us. For the time we're little, we want the training wheels off. We can't wait until we're in the driver's seat. We want to be on our own, and we'd love to be our own boss. We cling to independence, ignoring the thing that, God, uh, that David saw more clearly than we do, our ever-present need for help. The thing about approaching God is you can't ignore your neediness. We have to recognize that our very best simply isn't enough. When David implored God not to turn away, he desired both the relationship with him and also help from him. God meets both our need and our fear from rejection. In Paul Tripp's words, it's such a comfort to me, such a source of hope and strength and daily joy. It reminds me that I can stand before you, God, as I am, completely under, uh, unafraid before you as I am, completely unafraid and ask of you what I've asked before and will ask again, your forgiveness and your help. What gives me this courage? What offers this hope? This one thing, I know for certain that there are two words I'll never hear. I know that you will never look me in the eye and say, go away. Let's pray as one never forsaken. And then last, let's pray so as to live for Christ. In verse 11, David says, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I don't think David was expecting a rose garden experience, was he? He's recognizing that the storm includes the threat of people turning against him, lying about him, even attacking him. Again, this propels him to prayer. First, prayer to be taught. He calls out in humility, teach me your way, O Lord. Doesn't sound like the call of somebody who's secure in his own understanding or someone who is eager to prove what he already knows. No, instead of responding, I got this, he, David, is aware of his need, his need to be taught, to be shown the way to put himself under God's direction. May that be our prayer. When we see the threatening clouds, the wind, the approaching squall, that's a reminder of our need. Instead of striking out our own, may we reach for the hand of the teacher. David was hungry to learn more of his Lord, not content to rest on what he already knew, not satisfied with the depths of what he'd already sampled. He wanted more. He wanted to know his God even better. What about us? 
Jesus calls us his disciples. But are we his students? Are we yearning to grow in our understanding of who he is? Are we eager to spend time learning more of him? Do we expectantly respond to hard times saying, I'm not ready for this, Father. Teach me. Here's some questions that help us evaluate this aspect of our lives. What is there that I don't know in the situation I'm facing right now? What, what human logic am I likely relying on that's blinding me to God's truth? Is there an activity that I should let go of so there's room in my hands for this next eternal lesson? Yeah, David wanted to be taught. But he also prayed for the way of the Lord. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path, a path you've prepared. He wants to walk in a manner that pleases God. Sometimes we come to God and say, here are my plans. Can you put your stamp of endorsement on them? That's not what David's doing here. He wants to be pointed in the right direction. He wants God to take him by the hand and lead him along a path that he's prepared. See, God's way is not an event. It's a lifelong effort, a process, a lifelong transformation. If you're like me, you want instant change. I would love to be right instantly, to never make another mistake, another error, another fa never fall in sin again. More than anything, I'd love to never have to question the motives of my heart. But that's not God's way. In a way, this, this is his design. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, uh, Paul Tripp describes it this way. Immediately upon creating Adam and Eve, God began to talk to them. Why? Because unlike the rest of inanimate, uh, in, animate creation, people do not live by instinct. People's lives are directed by thoughts and motives of the heart. Every person is a theologian. Every person is a scientific researcher. Every person is a philosopher. Every person is an investigator. Every person is developing a functional view of life that becomes the tool by which he or she makes sense out of what is and what is experienced. God created us to live thoughtfully for him. Then sin entered the world. And now we begin to do what's right in our own eyes. And that's going to be the struggle. Am I doing what I, what's right in my own eyes? Or am I taking that to God and saying, I want to follow you. I want you to teach me the way. See, the danger is, unless we actively seek to be taught by God, consciously wanting to understand, to follow His way, we will default to a way of life that is contrary to God. Deb and I still make plans. But given the number of times God has broken in and said, no, we're not going that way. We now hold them a lot more loosely. 
we're conscious that his way may be very different from what we're planning, from what we see from our perspective. David's urgent plea for direction is driven because he's aware not only of circumstances but of opponents. He speaks of enemies and adversaries and false witnesses and even violence. Those are the very things that Jesus faced in his ministry. And there at the end, when he's facing a storm, none of us ever will. He is he's facing death for the sins of the world. None of us will ever do that. Listen to what he reveals to his disciples. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And as he cries out to his father, he says, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. With those words, he's asking with David, Give me not up to the will of my adversary. But then he continues with the very words that make our salvation a reality. Asking the Father to lead him in his way. Not as I will, but as you will. God answers prayer. He reveals himself when we seek him. He never forsakes us. Even if circumstances would seem to point to that, it's not true. God never forsakes us. And he desires to show us the way to live for Christ. So let's cry out to him in the midst of the storms of life. As we wrap up, what are some ways we can respond to this truth? First, we need to recognize the temptations that we face. When confronted by threats, whether they're danger or opposition, our natural inclination is to scramble for solutions of our own invention. What this does is it redirects our efforts from God's glory to our own safety, our own comfort. I'm going to list some things here. They may not be bad in themselves, unless they are replacing our dependence on God. Financial props, insurance, credit cards, even an obsession for work can be reflected there. Confidence props, things like social standing, advanced credentials, what, focusing on what other people think of you. Physical props, possessions, appearance. Those are things that we tend to turn to instead of running to God who has the answer. Second temptation is to start to look at people differently. We're no longer looking at them as God's creation. They are now something we can use. People become useful to us. We start to manipulate or persuade people to do things our way. We advocate or appeal for action on our behalf. We circumvent people who are opposed to our will. God is able to use people in our lives. So they, they are useful to God, we should, but we should be looking them with his eyes, his creation, 
ones that he chose to die to redeem for, redeem them. And then secondly, next time you experience a storm in life, and that may be right now, here's some thoughts directly from this, this passage. Call on him with confidence. His answer will be for your best. Second, call on him as your one thing. He, he will meet your every need. And then third, call on him to lead his way. He'll never forsake you. Let's pray. Father, passages like this show us how easy it is for us to drift away from you and towards our own understanding. Way too often, we engage in coming up with solutions before we turn to you in prayer. Forgive us for that. Father, instead, may we be eager to come to call on you, knowing that you have the very best in, in mind, the very best planned for us, even in this circumstance. Lord, may we call on you as one who wants to meet you, wants to be in your presence. May we come in confidence that you're not going to reject us, but instead you're going to show us, you're going to teach us your way. Lord, the last thing we want is for this to just be filed away in a mental filing cabinet. No, we want your word to touch our lives. Lord, teach us. Touch our lives. Remind us of this passage of scripture through this week. Bring circumstances that force us to remember our dependence on you. Lord, we, we ask you to do that so that we not become complacent, lazy sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, amen.